Church family, I think you know where we're going to be at this morning in John chapter 7. And while you are turning there, I was just thinking of the song that we sang just a few ones ago, Almost Home. And there is one less family member that needs to sing that in our church. Uh, Just this past week, one of our dear men in Highland Crest named Paul Jensen is not almost home, he is home. And so uh, we are really thankful to see his wife Joanne with us today. And your presence here is an encouragement that says, where else would I be but among my family uh, the Sunday after? When I think of uh, Paul, I, I think that if, if there were be a day where Highland Crest would make jerseys, and when you think about wearing a jersey, it's like, I'm all about that team, Um, I support that team, I'm loyal to that team. If we made jerseys that had Highland Crest written on them, I suspect that Paul Jensen would have wore that jersey frequently. It would have been among the most common ones used in his dresser. And as a pastor that was on the receiving end of a lot of encouragement from him, uh, he will be missed, his church will miss him, he loved He loved not only the local church, but he loved this local church very dearly, didn't he? On Saturday, this coming Saturday, you will have an opportunity to pay your respects to the family. I think that's visitations from 12 to 2, and then a service at 2 o'clock. It's right here in this room, so you can come by and do that. And I really appreciate the thought that's gone into the, the, the events following. Instead of having a meal, and many of you have been to a funeral meal before where like the church sit with, sits with each other, the family sits with each other, but there is no mingling. And Miss Joanne and the family want nothing to do with that. So they are declaring an ice cream social, <laughs> which I like. Uh, Mr. Jensen really loved ice cream. I think it's a great idea. The whole idea is for us to mingle with one another. And I think his favorite was moose tracks. I like that idea, too, of having some of that. <laughs> so... Uh, it's going to be a, a wonderful time, and let's just honor Mr. Jensen's memory and offer your uh, prayers and support to Miss Joanne. Well, we're in John chapter 7 today, and it is always fantastic to gather for singing prior to the message. And so we have been singing about standing up for Jesus. We've been singing, we want to stand on his promises. We have been singing of his grace. In effect, what we have been saying is, God, you are amazing. You are awesome. You are worthy of our lives. The exact opposite tone is what we have in John 7. It is a time where we're going to see Jesus offering a sermon near the end of the chapter, a very short one, but in order to get to that message, I think a highlight of John chapter 7, it's as if he has to run through a meat grinder of opposition. Now, if you're a guest with us, and I think, Steve, you will appreciate this, we really do believe that the Scriptures are inspired by God. We really believe that this is the Word of God. And one of the most loving things I can do is just to read the Scriptures to you, and you say, is this what the Bible is saying? I want to teach it to you, because from that comes faith. Come that comes insight. Come, from that comes life. And so what we like to do is just go verse by verse. And so what we're going to look, do is, is do the 52 verses here in John 7. We'll look at each of these verses, and then we'll come back, and I think there's four couple of things that we can hit on, four themes there from this passage. So let's look here at John 7, and let's look at the first two verses. After this... Jesus went up in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. When we see here in verse 1, after this, it's referring to after the events of John chapter 6. In John 6 verse 4, we find out that that is around the Passover festival In chapter 7, verse 2, we see that this is around the Feast of the Booths, which means that there's about a six-month gap between the events of chapter 6 
in chapter 7. Now, what is going on during these six months? Other gospel writers like Matthew will kind of fill in the cracks for us. This was a time in which Jesus was spending with his disciples. It's kind of amazing when you think about Jesus' ministry that he was all about investing in these 12 men, 11 whom would be found faithful. He would multiply himself and his ministry through these men. He was not so much concerned about preaching and accumulating the masses. In fact, last week we found out after a hard teaching, many of those would-be followers actually left him. It tells us here that Jesus was in Galilee. In Galilee is where Jesus performed most of his miracles up to this point. In John chapter 2, he turned water into wine. At the end of John chapter 4, he healed an official son. In John chapter 6, he fed the 5,000 and he walked on water. But we see here in verse 1 that he would not go up into Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem was because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The last time we saw Jesus in Judea was chapter 5. It was there where he performed a miraculous sign where he healed a man that was an invalid or paralyzed for 38 years. And if ever there would have been a cause of celebration, it would have been that moment. But instead, because he healed this man on the Sabbath, he was being accused of sin. In fact, look with me at John 5, verse 18. It said, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling himself God, his own father, making himself equal with God. The last time Jesus was in Judea, there were people that were threatening to kill him. So now we see that he's not going into Judea quite yet. We ought not to see that as a fear, because that was the whole reason Jesus came, was to give his life for our sins, to die on the cross. But the timing is not right. Verse 2 tells us that the Jews Feast of the Booths was at hand. Now, there were three different feasts that Jewish men were required to go to if they lived in around a 20-mile diameter of Jerusalem. There was the Passover, there was Pentecost, and there was the Feast of the Booths. I'm quite sure this would have been my favorite feast. And here's why. It would have been like a giant camping expedition, a big expo. Now, all of these feasts commemorated or recalled God's faithfulness in some way during the early years of the Israelites. The Feast of the Booths was a time where God's people remembered how God was faithful. One of the things they would do during this week-long festival is they would light up the temple. So there was a great glow that went about it, even into the evening hours. And what was this a symbol of? Well... In in Exodus 13, it was a symbol of God's presence, of this pillar of fire to give light to God's people as they wandered in in the wilderness. Another thing that took place during this Feast of the Booths is that every day a priest would take a very golden pitcher and he'd walk down from the temple, downhill, to the very same pool of Siloam that we read about in John 5, And he would scoop from that pool some water. And then with a great gathering following him, he'd walk back up through the water gate of the temple. And with everyone watching him, and while they were watching him, he would take the water and he would pour it down into the altar onto some rocks. And while he was doing that, the people would then recite Isaiah verse 12, chapter 12, verse 3, that reads, With joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. And what was this a picture of? During the the desert wanderings of how God brought water from rocks. Now the reason I say it was like a great camping expo is another thing that they would do for, for the children during this time is they would have everyone build their own little booths and they would make them out of sticks. So they would go and gather branches And they would make these large, I'll call them boxes, in which they would literally stay in or sleep in at night. 
So can you see the fun that children would have with their moms and dads? In the middle of the night, they're looking up at the stars and the dad is saying to the children, children, do you see the stars in the heavens? There was a time where our forefather, Abraham, was visited by God. And even though Abraham was old and he had no children, God said to him, Abraham, you will have descendants that number as many as these stars. And children, do you see the temple and how it is glowing here this evening? When God was meeting with our people in the wilderness, he provided a great light to guide the people. Oh, and tomorrow afternoon, we're going to see the water being poured out. God cared so much. He was so faithful to us that he actually brought water from a rock. So this festival would go on for about a week. Now we read here in the next part of John 7. So his, that's Jesus' brothers, said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Then verse 5 says, For not even his brothers believed in him. Are you aware that Jesus had brothers? Now, they were half-brothers. The scriptures tell us that Jesus was born of a virgin, that there is Mary, but she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But eventually, Mary and Joseph would have their own children. He would have brothers and sisters. According to Matthew 13, verse 55, some of their names were James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, or Judas. Now, sometimes when we read pages, or words on a page or maybe even words on a computer screen or words on our phone, we're not exactly sure, they're sure the tone in which they are said or the body language in which they come from. So when I read these words that the brothers are saying to Jesus, I'm not exactly sure how to take them. Now, it could be I had a brother and, and I, I live in a, a home where there's a lot of brothers, and it could be that there's some mocking taking place here. As if to say, hey, Jesus, this is all about a a campaign for you where you're promoting yourself as the Messiah. Why wouldn't you go now to the Feast of the Booze where there'll be thousands, nay, tens of thousands of people there? And then why don't you do some of your magic tricks there? Because there you'll certainly gather a following. It could have been that was the intended tone. It could be that they were really thinking from a political lens If this is really what you want to do is gather a crowd, Jesus, and be the new Messiah and overturn the Roman government, then this is a great opportunity because there will be thousands of people there and you will certainly gather some more followers. We heard what happened in John 6, that you lost a lot of followers. Here's an opportunity for you to recoup them. It could be that they were actually seekers at this time, saying, we don't know what to make of our older brother, Maybe if we saw some more of these signs, maybe we would actually be followers. Here's where I'm going to land, and and I don't know. I'm going to go with the mocking. I I think maybe they might be mocking him here. Do you find it interesting that in verse 5, that it says, For not even his brothers believed him. I suspect there are some here today that as best you could, you've raised your family in the ways of God. And now you you look around and you see that not everyone is following Jesus. And maybe there's some guilt or maybe some false guilt that has crept up on you. I would just remind you what it says here of Jesus. These people lived with Jesus and they didn't believe in him. Perhaps John 6 verse 44 would be helpful for us to read again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, for these four brothers, the story wasn't over, was it? Because one of them was named James, and this James would write the book of James. Another one was named Jude, and he would write the book of Jude. So your story is not over yet. He says to them in verse 6, My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. 
you saying to them to the brothers, it doesn't matter when you go, but I'm on a I'm on a time schedule. I'm on God's time. Those of you who have read through the Gospel of John before, you know that this is a common theme. There are seven instances throughout the Gospel of John when he refers to the right hour or the right time. We covered one of them in John chapter 2, verse 4, when he was talking to his mother, and he said, My hour has not yet come. He says to his brothers, For you, any time is good, because you're not believing me anyway. But I'm on my father's timetable. And then he says something thought-provoking there in verse 7. The world can't hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I speak out against the evil of the world. I think if we would take this verse and we would put it in February of 2022, um, this might not be real popular, but I think Jesus would probably be identified as a hater because he speaks out against sin. And, and in our culture, you're not supposed to make these sort of statements, but Jesus did. And as a result, the world hated him. He says then in verse 8, You go up to the feast, for I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not fully come. Verse 9 says, After this, he remained in Galilee. So the brothers go, but he waits for his right time in verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he was, went up, not publicly, but in private. So Jesus goes to the feast, but he's not trying to build his big entourage. He wants to go in private. Now we move to the feast itself. Verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Church family, is it possible that it could be that Jesus is a good man? And that he is one leading people astray. I think both of those assessments are false. Jesus is declaring himself to be God. He can't be just a good man. And he is not leading people astray. He is that light that is guiding people to truth. It says there in verse 14 then, about the middle of the feast. So if the feast is seven days, it's either the third or fourth day. Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Verse 16, So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I heard this week that there are around 30 different schools uh, that a person could study the scriptures during this time in Jerusalem, and Jesus did not attend any of them, but his teaching was far superior to theirs. Why was it? Jesus was not self-taught. He was God-taught. His teaching came directly from the Father. And then he says something very thought-provoking here in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Translation. The prerequisite to knowing God's will is a willingness to do God's will. When we express ourselves, God, whatever you want me to do, I will do it. We will hear from God. We'll we'll hit on that a little bit later. Verse 18 says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. And why do you seek to kill me? Now this is bringing back the events of John chapter 5. He performed a miracle. They wanted to kill him. And he said, you, you say that you want to keep the law. Moses has given you this law. You want to violate the sixth commandment by murdering me. The response in verse 20 is this. The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? We don't understand what you mean. Evidently, they were not there for the events of John 5. So they're just going to interpret where this is coming from. And they're saying, You have a demon. You are out of your mind. And then verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work. 
What was at work? In John 5, he healed a man that was an invalid for 38 years, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, a man's whole body well? Let me just explain that to you real quick. Jesus is looking at the leaders there in Jerusalem, and he's saying to them, you have no problem circumcising on the eighth day. Hey, you can't control when a Jewish boy is being born. Sometimes it's going to be born, and then on the eighth day, he would be eligible for circumcision. And you have no problem circumcising the child on that eighth day. Isn't that interesting? And what you are doing is you're actually taking away from that little boy's body. But if I heal on the Sabbath and make his body completely whole, then you're saying that I'm sinning. Can you see that your argument is inconsistent? In verse 24, something again that we might be surprised to read in our day. Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In fact, he is saying, there's a command here to judge, (laughs) but to judge in the right way. So this sort of uh, uh, message leads to some questions. In fact, one author And studying John 7 says there's 20 different questions that either have asked of Jesus or Jesus asked of others. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? See, there there was this threat to kill him. Verse 26. And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. This is kind of confusing, isn't it? One of the things that they're saying in the crowd that day is that when the Messiah comes, no one is going to know where he comes from. And this is a misinterpretation of a few verses. Namely, Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, where it says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So there were some that believed that they're not going to have any background on this Messiah. He's just going to show up one day at the temple. And they're like, we know where he's from. How how could he be the Messiah, the Christ? Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. The Father has sent me. And you don't know the Father. This would have been very offensive to the crowd that day. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. With this, verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because why? His hour, the timing, had not yet come. 31, yet many of his people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appear, will he do more signs than this man has done? So as Jesus is teaching we are seeing that there are some that are receiving this teaching and there are some that their eyes are blinded. There are some that can look at these signs that have been performed and turning water into wine, healing the official son, the the man in the pool in John 5, and they say, this has to be the Christ. Who could perform as many miracles as this? But not everyone. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Verse 32 has a lot there. One, I can't help but notice the play on words of muttering. What we have here during this Feast of the Booths is a time when they're referring back to the Israelites when they are wandering in the desert. And I would ask you, church family, what would be one word that would use to describe their attitude during that time? Grumbling, muttering. And so now you have the new Moses that is far superior to the first Moses. The first Moses just led people out of Egypt. This Moses leads people out of sin. And what are they doing? They are muttering. And we see also here that there's two groups. There's the Pharisees, and then there are the chief priests. The chief priests were made primarily of Sadducees. 
And loved ones, if you know your, your Bible there, you know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other. But evidently they hated Jesus more because on this day they were working together. Verse 33 says, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now you and I know what he means by that. There's going to come a time where Jesus is going to give up his life on the cross. He's going to be raised from the dead three days later. He's going to ascend and he's going to go back into heaven. But the people don't understand that. Where is he going? Verse 35. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? The dispersion was something that was to describe it this way. Not all the Jews were in around Jerusalem. Many of them were were scattered throughout, outside of Judea. And these people are saying, I wonder if Jesus is going to go to all those scattered Jews. The, The Judean Jews looked down at all those other ones. Verse 36, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And then we get to that sermon. There in verse 37 and 38. And on the last day of the feast, the great day. Let me just explain to you real quick what have taken place on the last day of the feast of the booths. I have been mentioning that this temple would have been lit up at night. I've been mentioning that every day during the day, a priest with a golden picture would go down to the pool of Siloam and scoop up some water and go out back into the temple and and pour it out on some rocks at the altar. But on this last day, this great day, this was the pinnacle of the feast. The priest would go down and grab that water again with the pitcher. He'd come up that steep hill to the temple, entering the water gate of that temple, and he would walk in, and all the people would be gathering. I would guess some tens of thousands of people there in the temple to watch for that moment when he would come in around that altar. And then him and the entourage that is following that priest would circle the altar seven different times. Why? Can you think of another time when that took place? There on Jericho. They would circle Jericho seven times. And the reason they did it on this last day of the feast, because it would commemorate that they were now leaving the wanderings and now claiming the promised land. Because Jericho was the first city that would be seized there in their conquest. So they circled this altar seven different times. The priest would go up and he would take the water in a very symbolic way, pour it out so the water would be demonstrated of how God had provided for his people. And I suspect it was during that moment, at the pinnacle of this feast, where Jesus, according to verse 37, stands up. Most rabbis would sit, but he stands up and he cries out so all the thousands of people in that temple could hear him. And he says, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I don't know what your perception of Jesus is this morning. Perhaps you have been swayed by some of this Renaissance art where it makes it look like some white, pale, weak man. But what we see in John chapter 7 is a man that knows that when he goes to Judea, it's going to be one conflict after another. There are people there that literally want him killed. But he looks them in the eye and he shares one truthful sentence after another. And then on the day, the great day, when everyone would have gathered, he stands in front of the people and offers this invitation to all that if anyone is thirsty, if anyone would love to have their sins forgiven and find satisfaction with their life in a relationship with God, they must come to him. What a savior. What a man of strength. What a warrior. Let's take a look at that sermon real quick. 
the first thing we see, in my mind, the most stunning, breathtaking word of all this chapter is the word anyone, the second word of this sermon. If anyone thirsts. Do you think he is saying that to the very people that are trying to kill him? I do. I think the invitation is even for them. If there is anyone here that is thirsty. And I suspect that within the room today, there could be some people that would reflect on their life and say, you know, this Jesus thing might be for someone else, maybe for that preacher up there, maybe for people in the family that, that have good morals, but what I have done, there's, there's no way this invitation could be extended to me. But I just want, to, I want you to see this, that this invitation is extended for everyone in the room here and in the room there. Even the people that were going to be killing him, he was offering an invitation towards forgiveness of their sins. And it says here, if anyone thirsts. So there has to be something within us that is not satisfied. There's an acknowledgement of sin. That I can't go on like this. That I have broken God's law. That I'm in defiance to God and who he is. And this thirst drives me to the next part that I must come to Jesus. And we come with empty hands, with a bowed knee, to say, I have no resources in myself to be made right with the Father. So I come, I humble myself, and I ask for the gift that you have provided through dying on the cross and being raised to life. I come and I ask for this. And then it says to drink. To drink is to believe. To believe the gift is offered. To to take that in. And it finds its fulfillment in Isaiah 12, 3. The same verse that would have been uttered as the water was being poured out at the feast. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Jesus is the well of salvation. And then it says in verse 38, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I find it really interesting that even in the invitation to come, to drink, to find your satisfaction in this eternal life, there's already a message here that says you don't keep this water for yourself. It flows through you onto others. Do you see it there? Out of his heart will flow rivers of of living water. Verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is referred to in 1 Corinthians 10 as the rock. The rock that was struck. And from him comes the eternal water, the life. The rock had not yet been struck yet. The Holy Spirit will come at Pentecost. So with such a strong message, there's a couple of different outcomes and a response to that. Let's look at verses 40 and 41. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? And there's still some seeking. Verse 42, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? A church family, when you read that verse, what, I mean, what, what thoughts come to your mind? Yes, exactly. He must come from Bethlehem. He must be from the lineage of David. And Jesus is both of those. Verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. That's the third time in chapter 7 where there's been an attempt to arrest him. Verses 30. Verse 32, and now we see it again in verse 44, but for some reason they were not allowed to because the timing was not right. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? 
Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? I mean, here are all the PhDs. None of them have believed. Why would you believe? But this crowd that does not know him, does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, who had come to him before in chapter 3, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And verse 52, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The ironic thing about that is these experts were wrong because Jonah, the prophet, actually came from Galilee himself. So let's just take a moment now and let's look at four different things that I think come from this passage. We've already covered a a lengthy passage, so let me just take a good run at these. Number one, I think we take from this, be a seeker who searches the truth from Scripture, not one who relies on the opinion of others. As we read through John 7, it is painful because there are all sorts of misconstrued ideas of who Jesus is. We read one there in John 7, verse 27, where they had this misinterpretation of some Old Testament scriptures that said, you know, Jesus, or this Messiah that comes, he's just going to show up at the temple. But the Bible doesn't say that. And then you got this, what we just read there in verse 42. Someone says, hey, isn't the Messiah supposed to come from Bethlehem? And isn't he supposed to be of the lineage of David? And the answer is yes. But why wasn't there anyone that day that just asked Jesus a few simple questions? Jesus, where are you from? Where were you born? They would have found out that he was born in Bethlehem. Tell us about your lineage. And they would have found out that he was traced back. David. And here's here's a charge for everyone here today. You can't receive secondhand information. You have to search the scriptures for yourself. Read them for yourself. What I also find interesting is that Jesus doesn't immediately clear up all these misunderstandings. And I'm left to conclude that he knows their heart. And that for him to do it would have been a waste of time because they'd already made up their mind of who he is. There's a great demonstration, I think, of Matthew 11, verse 25 in John 7, where Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. If we understand the scriptures, it's as if we are the little children. We've just come to say, Teach us what the scriptures have to say. But it's the high and learning that can't can't see through their little documents and their, their diplomas. They can't read the scriptures for themselves. We have a genuine satisfaction in in doing things and investigating things on our own. Some of you are love to make quilts or afghans or blankets. Some of you love to build things instead of pulling in a, a shed, a storage shed from a big box store. You want to make it yourself because of the satisfaction of building with your own hands. Some of you appreciate music, but it's, that's not enough. You want to play the music. Some of you love to eat, and it's not enough for you just to go down and buy meat at a store. You, you want to kill stuff and eat that meat. Because you get more satisfaction from that. And I'm just here to tell you that there's a great satisfaction that comes when you read the scriptures for yourself. I want to also offer a word of warning to myself, to anyone that stands behind this pulpit, or anyone that teaches in a Bible study here at Island Crest, or if you're a guest and you teach somewhere else. Can we see it? that the dear people in John 7 are being misled by some false teachers. I mean, it's heavy for me. They're, They're being led to hell by these teachers. So you and I have a responsibility to search the Scriptures ourselves, to see Jesus and preach, teach Jesus to people. I think the second thing we see here 
is the submitted will is essential to discern God's will. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's how I suspect that many of us approach God's will. God, if you'll let me know your will, I'll let you know if I will obey your will. Can I get a witness for that? I appreciate what a dear pastor named Donald Barnhouse said. He said 95% of knowing the will of God consists in being willing to do it before you know what it is. And I'm basing that on verse 17 of John 7, where he says again, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So there's this hunger that says, All I want to do is your will. And so you tell me what your will is, and I'll do it. Now, I wonder if there's some parents in the room that have had an experience, not, not currently, but maybe a far distant past, where you can remember a time with your children, where they may have said, what would you want me to do? And you know enough to say, it doesn't really matter what I tell you to do, because you're not going to do it anyway. And could it be that we're that way with God? And we're sitting here fussing, God, tell me what to do. But the reason it seems as if he is silent is because our heart are hard and we're not going to follow it anyway. So the first step into knowing God's will is to say, whatever you tell me to do, I want to do it. I want to have a humble heart. Let me know what you would have me to do. G. Campbell Morgan said, when men are holy, completely consecrated to the will of God and want to do that above everything else, then they find out that Christ's teaching is divine and that is the teaching of God. So I just want to say something. If you're here today and you're seeking, I'm so glad that you're here. You are welcomed among us. Just continue to seek. But read the scriptures for your own. There might be a podcast, there might be a TED Talk where they talk about Jesus and talk about the Scriptures. Just read the Scriptures on your own and let God speak to you through them. Let me give you a third thing here. It is possible to attend a worship service, but not worship in the service. I'm, I'm, I'm taken back by these four brothers that are going to this feast. Now, we, we have the benefit of knowing that this whole feast is the is find its fulfillment in Jesus, right? He is, the, he is the light that guides people in truth. He is the water that he has been struck to provide eternal life. But they're going to go to this week-long worship service, but they leave Jesus behind. I mean, there's anyone else that finds that ironic, and then I wonder, do we do that? Do we gather here on Sunday morning? Do we gather here on Wednesday evening or, or whenever? But we don't even take Jesus with us. And we just come and sing and we sit in chairs and we visit with one another and talk about weather and catch up with each other. And we come to a worship service, but we don't worship in the service. Uh, that's really convicting, I think, that we have to set our hearts and be ready that when we gather, now we certainly don't need to wait till Sunday morning to worship. We want to be worshiping every day, every week, every moment of the week, right? But when we gather for the service, we need to set our hearts for worship. I was thinking about a couple of months ago, Zach and I took our some of our boys to a, a sporting event, a Bucks game, and and that was an event that we prepared for. We thought about, okay, we're going to purchase our tickets. This is where we're at. In, in making preparation for that, we thought ahead, I'm certainly not going to spend money on concessions, so we're going to eat before we get there. And uh, we're going to get there early enough so we can get a good seat. I want you guys to see everything, with the player introductions, when they blow stuff up and when they come out. We want to make sure that we're there at a good time for all of that. 
We're going to go to the gift shop, and we're certainly going to go to the bathrooms before the game because I paid good money for these tickets, and you're going to watch this whole game, all right? And then we're going to take this whole thing in from beginning to end. In fact, if you even want to put your buck stuff on, go ahead and do that. This is an event for us. And I've wondered, do we approach worship service in the same way of preparing ourselves, of getting our hearts ready, because this is the big event for us this week? You know, probably the hardest, one of the hardest positions in our church is what Scott does and leads music. As he, this isn't being triggered by any recent conversation, it's just on my heart, but uh, how do you lead songs that minister to everybody? In my time here, I've heard people say, we sing too many new songs. I've heard people say, we sing too many old songs. And I think of a pastor friend that I have that says, what we try to do is offend everybody. (laughs) And I'm beginning to think that's probably the best approach. And so thank you for Scott. What a blessing you are to us to, to, to lead us in old songs and challenge us in new songs. And we ought to love each other through it. But we have a responsibility, church, to prepare our hearts to be ready to worship. It's possible that you may gather today, leave here today, and not even worship. And then the final thing that I think I see here is true joy is not only in drinking the living water, but allowing it to flow through you to others. I find that just stunning there in John 7 where it says in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow, will flow, will flow rivers of living water. And so it could be that as our dear brother Frank was playing, as the deer pants for the water, soul, my soul thirsts after you. You know what we can do with that? We can think this is all about me getting my thirst met. And it's not all about that. And even in this sermon, Jesus is proclaiming it. If you are thirsty, come to me and drink. And when you drink, the rivers of this living water will flow from you. Now, you and I have no ability to save people. We only have the ability to allow that message to flow from us. Onto others, And I, I think what we have here is the true joy is when it flows from us into others. I was just reading, and then I'll, I'll wrap it up here, a little commentary by Kent Hughes that spoke about a minor. He said, in the 19th century, Billy Bray, a dynamic Christian and Cornish minor, so overflowed with Christ that wherever he went, men trusted Christ. Each day as he went into the mines, very dangerous in those days, he would pray with the miners and he went, as he went down. He'd say, Lord, if any of us must be killed or die today, let it be me. Let, let not one of these men die, for they're not happy as I am. And if I die today, I shall go into heaven. It was rumored that at times when he got to the bottom of those mines, that all the other miners were on their knees. Power and overflowing joy. These are the characteristics of great drinkers of the Spirit. But the sublime irony is that we never experience satisfaction as we are meant to have until our lives give satisfaction to others. That is what Jesus was saying. John Bunyan knew all about it when he wrote, There was a man, the world did think him mad. The more he gave away, the more he had. When our lives become stagnant and begin to become introspective and focus upon ourselves, the remedy is not to concentrate on our own satisfaction but on satisfaction in Christ, seeking to flow through us. When we come to a wall in our spiritual lives, we need to look for avenues of service. 
We need to drink of the Holy Spirit so much that he flows out to others. And may that be said of us today, that this flow is not stagnant in our lives, but it is flowing onto others. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, once again, we've had the opportunity to see Jesus. There he is, right there in the pages of Scripture. He is one that even though he knew he would face questioning, he would face people that would accuse him of being demon-possessed, he would face people that wanted to kill him, he made his way through the arguments and the hateful glances and the false accusations. And he stood before the people as he would stand before us today and say, who here is thirsty? Who here is tired of being in their sin? Who here feels that they are stuck and incapable of getting out? I got good news. Come to me. Ah, I have come just for that case. I've come to forgive you of your sins. I loved you so much that I was sent by the Father to die on the cross for you, to take your sins upon me, that you would not feel the burden and the weight of that sin anymore, but you could be free. You could be satisfied as a thirsty man or woman in drinking a cool glass of water. Come to know him. Drink of this water. Take him in on your own life. And for those of you who have done that, let us be reminded again to search the scriptures on our own. Let us be reminded to come and to worship Jesus fully. And let us come as well to be filled up that we might flow on to others. May that be our ambition in life. We thank you for these great truths that have been deposited into us And now we find ourselves responsible to keep them. In Jesus' name, amen.